Baseball cranks all over the city of Chicago woke up with an extra tinge of anticipation on October 1st, 1903. For the first time, they were going to get the chance to see the city's two Major League Baseball teams compete head-to-head. That was the plan, anyway. The weatherman's morning forecast calling for a full day of rain put the long-awaited battle at risk. Sox and Colts may meet today, read the hesitant headline of the Chicago Tribune sports page for a story that practically begged the rain to hold off. The best of 15 series had been arranged with little room for weather-related mishaps as the Cubs' contracts were set to expire on October 15th. But in a series that had already waited three years to take off, what would another 24 hours be anyway? I'm Terry Bonadonna, and on today's episode of Chicago Civil War, we get to sit in on the long-awaited tussle as the Cubs and White Sox take the same field for the first time in the two franchises' histories. We'll also discuss the continuing war between the leagues and the controversy that led to one of the most important moves in Cubs history. Stick around. The game wasn't scheduled to begin until 3 o'clock, but fans lined up outside the west side grounds hours earlier. The forecast was proving to be a farce. With the temperature sitting near 70 degrees and no more rain than a few scattered drizzles, it was turning out to be a gorgeous afternoon for a ball game. The Cubs received the honor of hosting the opener of the 15-game set, and the home team were heavy favorites to get to eight wins first. For three years, fans had been clamoring for a crosstown rivalry to be consummated on the field, and throughout those three years, the Southsiders may have had a legitimate claim to being the best team in the city. They just wanted a chance to prove it. Now that chance had arrived, but the crew that was prepared to take the field on October 1, 1903, was a shadow of the one that had won back-to-back pennants in 1900 and 1901. Prior to the season, their best hitter from the previous year, George Davis, decided to return to New York. The former Giants shortstop and manager had jumped to the Sox in the League Wars, and thinking he was all washed up, the Giants just let him go. After the future Hall of Famer put together one of the best seasons of his career, New York decided they wanted him back. He returned to the National League, forcing Charles Comiskey to obtain an injunction which prevented him from playing in the senior circuit. Davis ended up appearing in just four games in 1903. He returned to the White Sox the next year, but that hardly benefited the 03 unit that was stealing itself for a state with the Cubs. Then there was the story of Clark Griffith, another future Hall of Famer, this one a pitcher. Griffith, who had made his bones as the ace of Chicago's Westside Club in the 1890s, was another casualty of the League Wars. He was the most notable National Leaguer to jump to the upstart AL, and in fact, may have been the main catalyst for making the league go major. He's credited with personally convincing nearly 40 players to jump leagues. In two seasons with the Sox, Griffith won 39 games and managed them to a league championship. But after 1902, the league's Baltimore franchise moved to New York, and AL President Ban Johnson was determined to make it work in the nation's biggest city. He persuaded Comiskey to send Griffith, the American League's biggest star, to the New York club to get them off the ground. The move proved beneficial to the American League, but not so much to the White Sox. For the first time in the franchise's young history, in 1903, the Sox finished with a losing record, going just 60 and 77. Meanwhile, just down the road, the Cubs were experiencing a renaissance under manager Frank Seeley. The once proud organization which tore up the National League in its first decade had fallen on hard times, finishing below 500 in seven of the previous 11 years. 
Their performance hit rock bottom in 1901 when they went just 53-86-1, compiling the worst winning percentage in franchise history. That 381 mark remained their nadir all the way up to 1962 when their 103-loss team finally surpassed it. Changes were necessary and the Cubs weren't afraid to make them. When Frank Seeley was inexplicably fired by the Boston Bean Eaters after the 01 campaign, the Chicago outfit pounced, signing him up as manager. In 12 years in Boston, Seeley had won five pennants and finished below 500 just once. Seeley quickly began scouring the minor leagues for talent, and the results were immediate. 1902 saw the additions of Joe Tinker, Jimmy Slagle, and Carl Lundgren, all major players of the Cubs dynasty that was just a few years away. In 1903, Johnny Evers was added to the roster that had already included mainstays Frank Chance and Johnny Kling. The 1902 squad improved by 15 games over the previous year's edition, and in 1903, they added 14 more victories to that total. By the time the City Series commenced in October, there was little doubt which of the city's two teams was superior. The respective positions in the standings must have been a blow to Ban Johnson. This fall's postseason was supposed to be a coronation for this self-proclaimed major league. With Crosstown or State Series going on in St. Louis, Philadelphia, Ohio, and Chicago, not to mention the battle for world supremacy between Pittsburgh and Boston, Johnson's group would finally get the chance to prove its mettle against the older league. Their marquee franchise, though, the White Sox, found itself in its worst position ever to contend. In a last-ditch effort to add a little pop to the lineup, Charles Comiskey pleaded with Cubs owner Jimmy Hart to allow Harry Pep Clark to be eligible for the series. Clark, the third baseman signed just a few weeks earlier out of the Texas League, had hit 308 over the last 15 games of the season. The two magnets had previously agreed on the rules governing the series and determined that a player must have appeared in at least 20 championship games to be eligible for the postseason. Championship games was the parlance at the time for the regular season. Comiskey generously offered to let the Cubs use pitcher Clarence Curry, who had thrown in only six games for them, but Hart declined. Both Clark and Curry were ineligible. It turned out to be a shame because neither man ever played another major league game. Another rule that Comiskey and Hart had established underlined the importance of the inaugural battle. Each team would be allowed to select one umpire from its respective league, establishing a two-man crew for the series. Although two-man umpire teams had been discussed for years and even used on occasion, the standard was still one per game. The two-umpire system didn't become uniform across Major League Baseball until 1912. For the 1903 City Series, James Hart selected James Johnstone, while Comiskey's pick, John Sheridan, held off on responding. He was looking to hook bigger fish, hoping that he'd be selected for the Pittsburgh-Boston clash. When he wasn't, he finally agreed to come to Chicago, and he made it just in time for the first game. I mean just in time. There were fears that Sheridan wouldn't arrive, and so there was some talk of having one player from each team join Johnstone in making the calls. But the series was deemed far too critical to allow for such shenanigans. Players were occasionally called on for emergency situations in those days, but it wouldn't happen for the postseason. Johnstone was behind the plate for the 3 o'clock start of Game 1, as despite cloudy skies, things kicked off as scheduled with the Cubs' Jack Taylor facing the Sox's Ducky Holmes. Taylor retired Holmes, then Fielder Jones and Jimmy Callahan in a perfect first inning. The Cubs segment of the crowd, which made up just over half the attendance, was thrilled with the opening stanza. They grew louder still as Johnny Kling scored the first run in City Series history in the bottom of the second inning. Try to follow along here. Kling drew a leadoff walk, then stood at third with Doc Casey at first base. When White Sox pitcher Patsy Flaherty fired a pickoff throw over to first, Casey took off running for second base. 
In the ensuing rundown, Kling bolted from third and made it home safely, putting the National Leaguers up one to nothing. The ensuing runs weren't quite so confusing. They were plentiful, though. The Cubs added one in the third and six in the fourth, and the route was on. They finished the game with 10 hits, 7 walks, and 2 hit batters, giving them a steady stream of base runners against Flaherty who, despite pitching terribly, stayed in the whole game, as was the custom at the time. His counterpart, Taylor, was magnificent. He allowed only 3 base hits in the game. In the 4th inning, Jimmy Callahan reached on an error and stole 2nd. For the only time all day, the Southside supporters could let out a cheer. Callahan, also the manager of the team, was the only White Sox to reach 2nd base that whole afternoon. The next morning's edition of the Chicago Daily News noted that Taylor's pitching looks like Cy Young to the Southsiders. That's praise you might still hear today, though it actually seems a little out of place for the time. Taylor and Young were contemporaries, and you could make an argument that Taylor had actually been better than Young over the last few seasons. Furthermore, the same day as Taylor's gem, Young was shellacked for 7 runs on 12 hits and a loss to Pittsburgh in Game 1 of the World Series. Regardless, the 11-0 final seemed to prove what everyone other than Comiskey had suspected all along. The Cubs were in a different league than the White Sox, literally and figuratively. This diagnosis became all the stronger when Tornado Jake Weimer held the Sox to three hits in the Cubs' Game 2 triumph. He was perfect into the sixth inning on his way to a 5-1 win. The next day, it was Bob Wicker's turn to play Cy Young. You know, regular season Cy Young. As his four-hit shutout gave the Cubs a 3-0 lead in the series. At that point, they had outscored the Sox 22-1. Van Johnson was in attendance at Game 3, the second straight to be played on the south side. He had left the World Series to check in on Chicago's version of a fall classic, only to see his beloved American League take a huge deficit. Perhaps Johnson was bad luck. By October 4th, Boston and the White Sox were the only two AL teams trailing in their series. The A's were up 3-1 on the Phillies, the Browns won the first four in a row from the Cardinals, and Cleveland took the opener from Cincinnati. For whatever it's worth, Comiskey decided that he was the jinx in the first three games. The team owner, who had become accustomed to sitting in the dugout during games going back all the way to his days as a player and manager, decided to watch Game 4 at the West Side grounds from the stands. Game 4 was the first to be played on the Cubs side of town since the opener, and it was also the first Sunday contest of the series. During a time when most men still worked six-day weeks, Sunday was the only chance many had to see a game in person. 15,000 crammed into the ballpark that didn't feature quite that many seats. According to the newspaper accounts, nearly all of the fans this time were root, root, rooting for the home team. Note, that reference may have been pretty cheesy just now, but it wouldn't have even made sense back then. Take Me Out to the Ball Game wasn't written as a song until 1908. Anyway, if 15,000 fans doesn't sound like all that much to you now, consider that the Cubs' average that season had been just over 5,500. In fact, the major league average never cracked the 15,000 mark until 1947. In other words, this was a pretty big gathering. In the first half of the 20th century, it was not uncommon for fans to line up along the warning track on the field of play when the crowd got too big for the seats. Most ballparks had a set of ground rules determining what would happen when a ball was hit into the crowd. On this day in 1903, the attendance grew to be so big that by the second inning, fans started to pour onto the field. Police initially made a half-hearted attempt to stop them before they simply let them go, causing a long delay in the action while spectators positioned themselves along the outfield fence. Most of these fans, though, wound up disappointed, not because they had to stand and watch from an awkward angle all afternoon, though I don't think that really helped, but because the Cubs never showed up. After completely dismantling the White Sox for three straight days, the Westsiders took a beating of their own in Game 4. With the bases loaded and two outs in the top of the first inning, Frank Isbell hit a towering fly to left center field that should have ended the inning. 
but Jimmy Slagle dropped the ball, scoring two runs. For the first time all week, the Sox held a lead, and they never let up. With Danny Green on the shelf after getting hit by a pitch in Game 3, pitcher Doc White filled in in the outfield and ended up leading the White Sox attack. He finished with three of the team's 16 hits and scored four runs in a 10-2 win. Jack Taylor, the Cy Young stand-in just three days earlier, was the GOAT for the Cubs, while Frank Owen went the distance for the Sox' first win. After four games, the fans had seen almost everything. Great pitching, heroic defense, unlikely offensive heroes, and both teams flexing their muscles in blowout wins. The one thing the series was still missing was a close, competitive game. That all changed on Monday afternoon when the Cubs hosted Game 5. Bob Wicker got the start for the Cubs against the White Sox' Nick Altrock. In later years, Altrock became known for his comedic antics on and off the field during a 42-year stint as a Washington Senator's assistant coach. He frequently performed comedy skits on the field before games and traveled the vaudeville circuit in the offseason. For now, though, he was a rookie pitcher developing into a staff ace. He compiled a 2.15 ERA over eight starts in 1903 and went on to win 62 games over the next three years. Wicker was no slouch himself. After coming to the Cubs in an April trade with the Cardinals, he won 20 games the rest of the way. On this afternoon, the two gentlemen engaged in a great pitcher's duel, but the White Sox were able to jump in front thanks in part to a bizarre seventh inning in which the Cubs' heralded infield combo committed four errors, but because of a White Sox base running gaffe, surrendered only one run. In case you haven't realized it yet, the game wasn't quite as crisp in 1903 as it is in 2020. Jack Tanner of the Chicago Inner Ocean offered his own explanation during the 03 series. He said, There's not a man on either team who is playing up to his real form for the simple reason that they are all over-anxious to win. That's a nice thought. It's also possible that defense just wasn't quite as crisp back then. Here's some more proof. It was 3-2 Sox in the bottom of the ninth when Joe Tinker drew a walk and made it to third with two outs. Alt-Rock needed only to retire Doc Casey to end the game, but when Billy Sullivan let one through his legs for a passed ball, Tinker scored and we had the first Major League postseason game ever to go into extra innings. But they didn't last very long. Lee Tannehill's base hit in the top of the 10th scored Fielder Jones, and the White Sox were 4-3 winners. With the series at 3-2, the Cubs got back on track with a 5-2 Game 6 win, led by a Jake Weimer gem, his second of the series. Danny Green, by the way, returned to the Sox lineup that day and went just one for four. Doc White had gone six for nine and two wins as his replacement. It just goes to show you, always play your pitchers in the field when you have the chance. At least that's my takeaway. But what do I really know? Green did have three hits in game seven and for the first time was on the field in a win. Doc White got in on the fun as well, collecting a hit and scoring a run. His real contribution came on the mound though, as he picked up his first win of the series. For the second time, Jack Taylor was clobbered for the Cubs, though he also chipped in with three hits. Pitchers hitting. That's what this podcast should have been about the whole time. It isn't, though, so I don't want to go any further now without acknowledging the major event that occurred between games six and seven. There was a rainout. The National Leaguers' contracts were all set to expire on October 15th, so there wasn't any room for a makeup date. The Cubs tried to put that concern to rest by winning the eight games before it would have come up. They won both games 8 and 9, taking a 6-3 lead in the series. The eighth contest was especially excruciating for the Sox. Frank Owen and the Cubs' Carl Lundgren dueled through eight and a half innings to a 0-0 draw. 
but with one out in the bottom of the ninth, Frank Chance hit a dribbler to third base that brought Jimmy Slagle home from third for a 1-0 win. According to the Chicago Tribune, Chance had grown unpopular with the fans throughout the series for his continued prolonged arguments with umpires, but he was the most popular man in the Cubs clubhouse. Earlier in the season, the team was set to name a new captain. Frank Seeley allowed the players to vote on it, but made it very clear that Doc Casey was meant to be the choice. The players felt differently. Chance received 11 out of 17 votes, Casey only 4. Seeley was initially perplexed by his team's decision, but Chance proved to be the right man for the job, leading the team in some capacity for the next decade. Game 10 marked the South Side's first chance to host a Sunday contest. And just like the previous week on the West Side, the crowd spilled out onto the field. They were an orderly crowd though, and the game turned out to be a dandy. Game is well played, read the extremely inventive headline of the next day's Tribune. The Sox won it thanks to a third inning rally that began on a Billy Sullivan hit into the overflow crowd that was ruled a triple based on previously established ground rules. Sullivan's team went on to a 2-0 win behind Dr. White's shutout. White's given name was Guy, but Doc was more than just a nickname. It was a title for the man who earned a degree in dentistry prior to his playing career. He opened his own practice after the 1902 season and returned to it during his first several off-seasons. Now the part-time dentist was almost single-handedly keeping the Sox alive in the inaugural City Series. They trailed the Cubs six games to four, but White had two of his team's wins and was a major offensive contributor in the other two. While White was keeping his team afloat, Jack Taylor was doing his best to sink his. The Cubs' supposed ace, who had been so dominant in the first game, suffered his third straight loss in Game 11. Frank Owen held the Cubs hitless for the first six innings as the White Sox won 4-2. Now with the Sox down only one game, Charlie Comiskey could smell a series win. He offered his team $2,500 to be split evenly among the players if they would win two of the next three to even the set. It didn't look good for that money early on as the Cubs finally clipped the good Dr. White for a 5-1 final. By now, all of the other postseason tilts were over. The American League had been dominant, winning each of the other four, including the first AL-NL World Series, in which Boston took the best-of-nine competition, five games to three. The Cubs were the senior circuit's final hope, and they were only one win away from a clinch. The Sox had all the momentum, though. After Frank Yip Owen threw a shutout in a 2-0 Game 13 win, Comiskey, refueled by his team's late series charge, wanted to schedule a doubleheader for the last day of the series to ensure there would be a clear winner. The Cubs said no, and their excuses were not well received. First, they claimed that they were tired from the long pennant race while the Sox had been mired in the cellar in the AL. Then, that their pitching staff was too beaten up. Also, the south side grounds were not up to snuff, manager Frank Seeley complained. That eight of the first 14 games were played there was unfair to begin with. The Cubs weren't about to play a 15th and decisive game on the road as well. Earlier in the series, local reporters suggested that the faster infield of West Side grounds was exposing the White Sox lack of speed, and maybe there was something to that. The Sox were 2-4 and four on the road in the series and 4-3 and three at home. Still, when the doubleheader was turned down, the Sox offered to play a 15th game on the West Side the next day. Again, the Cubs declined. Joe Tinker was getting married that day and Johnny Kling was invited to the wedding. There was no way to make it work. Maybe though Tinker should have just thought ahead like his opponent Doc White. White used his time off between regular season and postseason effectively, getting hitched on September 29th, two days before the start of the City Series. The two teams took the field on October 15th, knowing it would be the finale. A Cubs win would be a National League triumph. 
The Sox needed to come out on top just to earn a tie, but the win would also earn them $2,500. The game turned out to be anticlimactic for Cubs fans. The White Sox scored two runs in the first inning, and Nick Altrock made them stand up, holding the Bruins to just four hits. The series ended in a 7-7 tie, but for the Cubs, it felt like a loss. They had squandered series leads of 3-0 and 6-3. The White Sox celebrated all the way into Comiskey's office. The club founder was only too happy to be out 2500 bucks, knowing that his side had proved themselves equals to the heavily favored Westsiders. For the players' part, each man claimed they'd rather pay twice what they were receiving than lose the final game. They returned home for the offseason as co-city champions. As for the fans around town, the Cubs may have lost a few supporters by the way they ducked the decisive game. Whichever team the locals supported, though, it was quite clear that there was an audience for postseason play. Suggestions came across to shorten the season to allow for more postseason games and better weather. Spring series, which had been proposed over the last several seasons, were summarily dismissed. It seemed as though most people preferred the games to be played at the end of the season when the teams had rounded into form and were theoretically playing their best ball. So there was little doubt that the Cubs and White Sox would be ready for another postseason clash in 1904. That turned out to be true on only one side of town. The series had been such a hit with the players and fans that prior to the start of the next season, Comiskey was already gearing up for a rematch. In fact, even if the White Sox won the pennant, he said, they would play a World Series, then challenge the Cubs to another one for the city title. The Cubs had other ideas. After ducking the final game of the previous season, they bowed out of the entire series in 1904 and they weren't the only ones. After the success of the 1903 World Series, holding another one in 1904 should have been a no-brainer. There was a problem, though. After Pittsburgh had won the previous year's pennant, the New York Giants ran away with the NL in 1904, outpacing the second-place Cubs by 13 games. New York's manager, John Muggsy McGraw, was a staunch anti-American leaguer from his days playing and managing in Baltimore. In his two seasons with the Orioles, Muggsy constantly clashed with Ban Johnson over the former's treatment of the umpires and his general on-field demeanor, which was much more brash than the AL president preferred. In July of 1902, McGraw was suspended by Johnson, and the Orioles skipper took the opportunity to jump back to the National League. Now he had a chance to stick it to his former boss, and with the pennant decided well before the end of the season, McGraw and the Giants' owner, John T. Brush, another Johnson hater, announced that they would not take on the American League champion. The NL champion, Brush claimed, and this is a direct quote now, is entitled to the honor of champions of the United States without being called upon to contend with clubs from minor league towns. Ouch. McGraw echoed the sentiment, calling the national the only real major league. As you might imagine, that ruffled a few feathers, including Comiskey's and Ban Johnson's. Johnson called out the National League for its weakness at the top. That would grow to be a recurring theme in the battle between the leagues over the upcoming years. While Johnson ruled with an iron fist for over 30 years, the NL was on its sixth president already since 1876, and there would be four more before the game's first commissioner took over in 1920. Johnson's point was simple. Renegade owners like Brush shouldn't be allowed to determine postseason schedules. If he were in charge of the other league, he would see to it that the Giants held up their responsibility to the fans by playing the AL champs. Boston for the second straight year, by the way. Meanwhile, in Chicago, Brush found a sympathizer in James Hart, who likewise had decided to forego the postseason matchup. Though he was accused of supporting a bad egg in Brush, Hart also received other accusations, like maybe he was afraid of the White Sox after the way last year's series ended. More damning still was the implication that he just didn't feel like it. 
He and his family were planning to depart on a European vacation the week after the season ended. Hart himself gave a different reason for backing out of the City Series. I believe that games should be played to decide the championship of the world, the championship of state, or of a city, he stated. But the contest should be honestly conducted and, like Caesar's wife, be above suspicion. He went on to explain that he would never again allow his team to play in a postseason series until a governing body was put in place to adjudicate it. The implication was clear that the previous year's series was not on the level, that someone on the Cubs was on the take. Comiskey was furious. Not only had Hart backed out of this year's matches, he was trying to invalidate last year's results. He demanded evidence, of which there really was none, and he threw the blame right back on Hart. If there was a traitor on the Cubs, it was incumbent upon the owner to investigate and see to it that if there was foul play, the guilty party be expelled from the game. Ominously prescient words from the man who would be boss of the 1919 Black Sox. No one associated with the Cubs ever publicly named names, but everyone knew who the supposed game fixer was. Jack Taylor had thrown a three-hit shutout in Game 1 of the 1903 series and then was shelled in his next three outings. Taylor had supposedly had a loose mouth, crowing in a bar one night that he had been paid $500 to lose. When word got back to Hart, Taylor was immediately disposed of. Prior to the 1904 campaign, he was traded to St. Louis for an ex-minor with a deformed right hand. This trade, more than anything else, may have been the greatest legacy of the first city series. The Cubs may have lost a big lead and been branded cowards in both 1903 and 1904, but their pitcher who supposedly threw the series netted the team Mordecai Brown, who would become perhaps the greatest pitcher in franchise history. In his first season with the Cubs, Brown won 15 games and posted a 1.87 ERA. He didn't get a chance to show off what he could do against the White Sox, though. Hart never budged on his refusal to rekindle the rivalry. Cincinnati Reds owner Gary Herman tried to assuage hurt feelings in Chicago by offering the White Sox a best of seven, but Comiskey declined, claiming there was nothing in it for his team. The Reds already came to Chicago several times to play the Cubs, so fans wouldn't really have been treated to anything new. Heading into 1905, it was clear that there had to be an arrangement made between the major leagues. There was obviously a fan interest in holding postseason play, but even after the national agreement, the leagues were too far apart ideologically. That January, Comiskey ran into Cubs legend Cap Anson at the bowling alley Anson owned, and the two men engaged in a little west side-south side rivalry on the lanes. Over 100 erstwhile bowlers gathered around to watch, including Comiskey's good friend Ban Johnson. And when all was said and done, Comiskey was $4 richer. It may not have been a city championship, but it would have to do for now. Next week, the Cubs' two Franks, Seeley and Chance, continue to build their contender until they take a turn toward the dominant in 1906. But down on the south side, the Sox rise to meet them in a crosstown struggle that culminates in the game's first ever battle for both city and world supremacy. That's next week on Chicago's Civil War. You won't want to miss it. Please, don't miss it.